be encouraged. Because when you do reach out this week, when you do pray for an individual, when you show an act of kindness, when you're there and others are in need, that's radical discipleship. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Last Sunday morning, we began a new series of studies entitled Radical Discipleship. And back then, we looked at the story of Martha and Mary, and today we're turning to Nathaniel. And we're turning to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, and reading from verse 43 to the end of the chapter 51. John chapter 1 at verse 43, and you'll find it on page 1647 of the church Bible. Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. This past week, a friend sent me a video clip on Facebook, and he said, you really have to see this. I thought, well, let's have a look and see what's going on. And what you discover fairly quickly from the minute that the clip starts to run, that something utterly spectacular is about to happen. And as the story unfolds, it's a story of a young mum and dad, probably their mid to late 20s, they're having their first child. They are, of course, expecting at the maternity ward after the baby arrives. They're expecting the new grandparents, the new aunts and uncles and cousins, and it's a huge family affair. And during the pregnancy, they had asked the young couple, is it a boy or is it a girl? Do you have a name yet? What does the nursery look like? And the couple said, we don't know if it's a boy or a girl, and we are not going to ask we just want to wait for the surprise on that day. And so, there was a lot of excitement, great anticipation in the family. And the couple set up a video camera to capture their family coming into the room for the first time. And it's the capturing of those images that really are exceptional. 
because what happens is this. You see the family coming in, some of them holding wee ones, and they have the same response, and the response is, and they just don't know what to do. One of the brothers, he looks, and you can see him thinking, and he's looking and looking at mom and dad and the baby, and oh, he literally just turned it. He, he can't take it in, because when the family go into the mom's room, here is mom sitting with two babies. She's had twins, and the family don't know, and they come in, and, they sit, and they're trying to get their mind, and you can see particularly the brother, he's saying, now, is this a boy? Is this a girl? Is it two boys? Is it two girls? And you almost see him saying, she has done this just to tease us. And you can see all of that running through his mind, because not only is he overwhelmed, he simply can't take in what's going on. And I wanted to use that illustration this morning to put in context what's about to happen in this final section of John's opening chapter. Philip and then Nathaniel are about to experience the greatest single surprise of their entire life. And you, as we work through the passage, you'll begin to see, at least in your imagination, the wheels turning around and trying to put it all together, trying to come to terms with what's going on here. And over these next eight to ten Sundays, as we go further and further into what does it mean to be a radical disciple, you will have that self-same experience. What is the Scriptures calling us to, and what is God doing in my life today? Because what I want you to come away from this morning is this, not so much what happened to Philip and Nathaniel, spectacular life-changing as it was, but Father, how does this apply to me? So, with all of that as a contextual backdrop, let's come to the passage we read. We start John 1, verse 43, and it begins, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And the first thing you notice about this passage are the opening words the next day. Now, why is that significant? It's significant for this reason. Those three words are used earlier in the chapter at verse 35. Look back. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And look back again to verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God. So, three times in quick succession, John uses the same phrase, the next day, the next day, the next day. And in this opening chapter of John, Jesus calls Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and he's engaged with John the Baptist. There is so much packed into this passage we're in danger of missing it because he moves us quickly from one event to another, the next day, the next day, the next day, and you're almost breathless as you're reading John's gospel. The other thing I think most of us will be aware of is this, that not only does it begin with the next day, it's written by John. And whenever you think of John's gospel, you immediately think of John's prologue. 
John's prologue is so well written, it is absolutely masterful. It is crammed, compact, full of timeless truths, eternal mysteries. The redemptive purposes of God are laid out in those first 12 verses of John. In fact, the themes that come in the first 12 verses are repeated again and again throughout His entire gospel. And it begins with those famous words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And it's only those two opening words, in the beginning, that you immediately sit up and pay attention, because it sounds like, what other book? Genesis. It begins the same way, in the beginning. Now, why is that significant? Significant for this reason. As we come to John's gospel, the temptation because John begins with his prologue is to think that he is theologically intense, which he is. He does talk of timeless truths, eternal mysteries, the redemptive purposes of God, but also notice in the second part of the chapter, he deals with individual lives that are utterly transformed with the impact of the gospel. You see it again in chapter 3, when there's a long interview takes place between Jesus and Nicodemus. You see it in chapter 4, a second long interview with Jesus at the woman at the well in Samaria. You see it in chapter 5, where Jesus performs a miraculous, uh, performs a miraculous miracle of healing on the man at the sheep gate. And so, when you're tempted to think that John is theologically above everyone else and that he speaks in abstract terms, it's simply not true. When you read his gospel, it's about real people whose lives were genuinely, thoroughly transformed. And so, when it begins the next day, he starts off in a fairly mundane, routine way, but transformation is coming. Notice what happens. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now, why is that significant? Follow me. And sometimes, as we're reading the Scriptures, we find ourselves distant from the reality of what took place that day. The temptation is to think it's no big deal almost as if Jesus is casually saying, yeah, come and follow me. If you don't want to, that's fine. It's no big deal. Yeah, just come and follow me. But if we go down that road, we do distance ourselves from the reality of what took place, because what takes place here transforms the life of Philip with two words, follow me. Now, think about that just for a second, that some passing stranger would bump into you in the street and say, follow me. You say, sure. That's fine. I'll, I'll give up my family, friends, all I've known, my business, my social life. I'll, sure, I'll come and follow you. But what is happening with Philip is about to happen again with Nathaniel, and the day previously it happened with Andrew and then with Simon Peter. Hold that thought for a second. Let me bring you back to Genesis because we're going a little deeper here. 
In Genesis, as you know, we talked about it a minute ago, in the beginning God created. And in fact, later in that chapter it says this, He spoke and it came to be. Hold that image. Fast forward to Jesus speaking to Philip, and He says, follow me. When God speaks to an individual, and God brings to pass His sovereign purposes and eternal redemptive plans, when He says, follow me, these are not empty words of optimism that somehow, some way, it will all work out, but these are creative words, sovereign commands that are purposeful and intentional and transforms those He talks to. And when He looks at Philip, he is looking not only into his eyes, but deeper and deeper and deeper into his very soul, and he says, follow me. And Philip gets it. He understands the creative call of God upon his life, and it's as if the whole earth was shaking beneath him, follow me, and his life is forever transformed right there and then. A supernatural work of God takes place at that point. And when Philip goes to Nathaniel, he doesn't go to Nathaniel and say, do you remember we went out to the desert to hear that guy, uh, what was his name, John something, and he told us about the coming Messiah? Do you remember that? Well, I think I've met him. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, come and let me introduce you to this guy. He's pretty impressive. Doesn't say any of that. Notice what he does say. As the passage unfolds, what does he say? He says, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, what does that tell us about Nathanael? You only read of Nathanael twice in John's gospel, here in the opening chapter and again in the closing chapter. And we don't know too much about Nathanael. We don't know anything about his background. We don't know where he was born. What about his brothers and sisters? Who influenced his life? We know almost nothing. But what we do know is this, that when Philip says, we have found the one that Moses wrote about and the prophets wrote about, that tells us this, and this is in my imagination, so please forgive me, but I think it's a reasonable thing to imagine. Philip and Nathaniel knew each other well. We don't know if they were business partners or friends or just their families knew one another. We don't know. But they knew each other well because what Nathaniel, excuse me, what Philip does is this. He takes Nathaniel back to the Old Testament. Isn't that strange? That's almost odd and weird. Do you have any of your friends who would come over for dinner, and before you sit down, he would say, come, let me show you what I found in the Old Testament. You'll never believe this. You'd be thinking, okay, 
I think Philip and Nathaniel, and I hope they'll forgive me for this, were Old Testament geeks. <laughs> I think that was Philip and Nathaniel. Do you remember being 16, 17 years old when you discovered, and some of you will pretend you do not know what I'm talking about, but you got a new LP. Do you remember that? And you went to your friend's house and up into the room, and you would say hi to the mom and dad. You'd go up to the room, and you'd say, listen to this track, and you would put it on, and you would listen. You would get excited, and you'd think, whoa, we've never heard. Play it again. You'd get all excited. That's Philip and Nathaniel, but not with Buddy Holly, but with the Old Testament. Then Nathaniel plays it kind of cool. He says, of course, Philip says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel looks at him and says, Nazareth? Really? Nazareth? You've got to be kidding. There's no Old Testament prophecy about Nazareth. Nazareth didn't exist in the Old Testament. Nathaniel is saying, now, wait a minute, just, just hold on, let's not rush into this. Nazareth? Nazareth was a provincial rural backwater back then, uneducated, uncultured, unrefined, unsophisticated. The Messiah would never come from Nazareth. And Philip responds in a spectacular manner, and he simply says to him, come and see come and see. doesn't try to argue with him. He doesn't try logic or rationale. He simply says, come and see. And he says, come and see, because his own life has been transformed. And he knows if it can happen to me, it can happen to Nathaniel. And he simply says, come and see. And so, Nathaniel sets off. And off they go, looking for Christ. But before they get to Him, Jesus speaks first. And notice the passage. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, He said to him, Here is a true Israelite and who, in whom there is nothing false. And Nathanael says, how do, you, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. What is going on here? Before Nathaniel reaches Jesus, Jesus tells him who he is. I wonder if Nathaniel is thinking to himself, now, hold on a minute. Is this itinerant rabbi trying to impress me with parlor tricks and smoke and mirrors? Is he trying to be, is this flattery? What's going on here? And notice what Jesus had said just before that. Nathaniel, I know you. I know you. Nathaniel, but how, how can you know me? And he said, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. If you lived in the ancient Near East back then, people would plant, if they had the resources, fig trees around their home. They would grow to between 15 and 20 feet high. Their branches would go out wide. It would be very common to see mom and dad and the children playing under the fig tree, sitting there in the heat of the day, enjoying the shade. It would get very warm inside. And I suspect that's where Nathaniel would sit 
and read the Old Testament and pray. And when Jesus says, I know you, what happens here was this. I know you, and I saw you. And this was not flattery. This was omniscience. This was God Himself at work. And Nathaniel understands almost in a flash what has taken place. He gets it. He grasps the enormity of it as it's overwhelming him and surprising him to the core of his being. He understands this, that the extraordinary, incomparable, transcendent presence of the living God was right there with him, and his life was changed forever right there. Now, hold that thought for a moment. Hold on to the intensity of it, the wonder and the majesty and the miraculous nature of it. Hold that in your mind. And then come with me to what is, for most of us, a temptation. And the temptation over these Sundays together, as we work our way through looking at some of the disciples, will be to ask this question. What did God see in Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and the others that set them apart? Were they erudite? Did they have a first-class theological mind? Were they popular? Were they winsome? Were they warm in their personality? These are good questions to ask, but they are the wrong questions to ask, because it's not that God saw something in them, but what they saw in Him. And right there and then, Nathaniel says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And he gets it and understands it and wrestles with the enormity of it. And please hear this. When you do business with the living God at that level, you will never be content again until you know Him more, until you go deeper, until you expose your heart and mind and soul to Him in all of His grace, and you understand that He sees nothing impressive in you but you are lost in wonder, love, and praise of Him. That's what's happening here. And Nathaniel was not only impacted and transformed in John chapter 1, in John chapter 21, he's as faithful and still transformed and still longing for the presence of Christ at the end of the gospel every bit as much as he was at the beginning. Faithfulness makes for radical discipleship. Now, having said all of that, how do we then apply this passage as we wrap things up this morning? 
when you go out of your way to demonstrate radical discipleship, when you care, when you pray, when you give a word of encouragement to those in need, He sees all of that. And our prayer this week is He would say of us what He said of Nathaniel, I know them. There is no guile in them. They're seeking to follow me. They belong to me. Their life has been transformed. Prayer and worship and discipleship matter to them. They are mine. I know them. That's radical discipleship. And we know that radical discipleship leads to courageous faith. Courageous faith leads to fearless determination. If you were with us here on campus on Friday night and all day Saturday, you will know, and you may have heard it in the announcements earlier today, that as a congregation, we packed over this weekend 271,000, I think it's 647 meals for children who have nothing in the developing world. They have nothing. And you, as a congregation, stepped up and said, I want to see radical discipleship at work. I want to see what it means to belong to a church who cares. I want to be part of something that makes a difference. Nathaniel, at the end of John's gospel, understood the difference Christ makes because when He calls an individual to Himself, they can never be the same. And once you have experienced that call, and that in moments of prayer, that intimacy and love for Him is so overwhelming, nothing will satisfy you again. That's what's going on for Philip and Nathaniel. That's what happens in the life of the radical disciple. And so, allow me to say on the one hand, well done for grains of grace. That was spectacular. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And on the other hand, be encouraged, because when you do reach out this week, when you do pray for an individual, when you show an act of kindness, when you're there and others are in need, that's radical discipleship. And interestingly, when the passage ends and Jesus says to Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what's going on in those last couple of verses. You will see and experience God in all His wondering glory. That's what we have to look forward to. But meanwhile, here is the challenge. This week, your prayer might well be, Father, Give me, please, the experience that Nathaniel and Philip had in order that I might be yours fully, totally surrendered and submissive to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage of Scripture. Father, thank You that You not only call us to Yourself, but You sustain us and strengthen us and enable us. And we leave this morning grateful people, thankful for Your goodness 
and trusting that you will sustain us as we seek to be radical disciples for you. Father, hear our prayers, for we bring them to you in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a healing prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you are representing who needs prayer for physical healing, emotional healing, or forgiveness. Our hope is that you will encounter Jesus, the healer and redeemer, in a deep and meaningful way.